Dr. Juhi Siddharth is an assistant professor of public policy and gender studies at Flame University in Pune in India. She has engaged along with the subject of gender and sexuality in her academic and professional life for the past 10 years and her doctoral research at the University of Cambridge in the UK investigates the lived experiences of sexuality of young women from the slums of Mumbai. She holds an MPhil in developmental studies from the University of Cambridge and a master's in social work from the Tata Institute of Social Sciences. Her broad research interests include youth, gender and sexuality, modernity, education, development and social policy and she has an area focus on South Asia. Hi ma'am, it's a pleasure to host you on our podcast today. So, a lot of your experience and uh, your research work has been along the lines of gender and sexuality, especially in India. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about why this is a field that interests you and maybe just walk us through your decision in choosing the whole aspect of gender and sexuality as a field of study um, over the course of your research work. Thank you, Abba. Happy to be here. So yes, my interest in gender and sexuality, well, it started actually during my master's at uh, Tata Institute of Social Sciences in Mumbai. That was way back in 2002. Um, we, you know, as part of the MA in social work program there, we were placed in an NGO you know, twice a week. Every student had to work in an NGO and then the rest of the days we had classes in the university at the Institute. So I was in, in my first year, I was placed with this NGO, which had a drop-in center for HIV positive sex workers in Mumbai. Right. So this, this was, you know, um, the office was located right opposite Kamatipura, which is the red light district in, in Mumbai. And I was placed there. And um, so that exposed me for the first time to issues of gender and sexuality among a really vulnerable and marginalized population, mm-hmm. you know. So these sex workers uh, were not only, most of them were not only poor, and probably many of them were also trafficked uh, into the trade, but they were also HIV positive, right? So working there, just the whole issue, it just drew me in, you know, uh, it, it was so, uh, it was so interesting. At the same time, really, I got, got an opportunity to learn about, you know, aspects of poverty, you know, health. Uh, particularly in the area of HIV AIDS, which at that time, right, there were many, many NGOs in India that had come up to particularly tackle the issue of HIV AIDS. And how does that, how, how, you know, what are the socio-economic and cultural factors that make you more vulnerable to catching and uh, catching HIV infection, you know? So all of those aspects, you know, understanding the socio-cultural and economic factors that influence sexual behavior, sexual practices, right? That was my first exposure. And then eventually we had courses on gender in this. And that was the starting point. And I got interested in that area. And then of course, after that, when I had to choose a topic for my PhD, uh, I wanted to continue in that field. So I chose to then, you know, uh, look at young women and how do they learn about sexuality? You know, what are their sexual experiences? And there were very few qualitative studies in that area in, during that time, right? Even now, in fact, we have very little qualitative and ethnographic research on sexuality in India. So um, it just, you know, I thought I must do something in that area. And plus, I wanted to work with young people, young women in particular, 
and you know my i wanted my research to explore their lives so one thing led to another but i think the starting point was yes my experience my field work experience my ngo experience at tis right right i see um is there anything that you think surprised you over the course of your research work and your field work especially or anything that stood out that you would like to uh, bring to notice yeah um quite a few things surprised me so my my phd field work happened in you know one of the worst slums slum areas in mumbai in mward in in uh, the slums of chembur and govandi you know some of the poorest people live there and this particular group that i was uh, working with you know this uh, neighborhoods where i was going and interviewing young girls they were all uh, maharashtrian dalits and these young women uh, that i started interviewing about a decade ago right i mean i initially did focus group discussions and then um, you know um, some of them volunteered to participate in the in depth interview and you know i it was a very very restrictive environment you know these girls were constantly monitored there was heavy surveillance right where are they going what are they wearing you know parents would reprimand them if they if they were wearing jeans if you're talking too loudly if you're laughing with a boy in the lane all of these you know led to censure from parents from neighbors there would be gossip you know there would be instant labeling of these young girls you know or oh, this girl is loose you know they used to use the word faltu for that for, for such a girl right there was a dichotomy between a good girl who would you know basically uh, put her head down and walk from her home to school or college and come back you know she would be shouldn't she wouldn't be loitering she wouldn't be chatting with the boys in the street she wouldn't be uh, vivacious or talking too loudly or um she wouldn't be basically enjoying her life right so that was the kind of environment that these girls were living in but what surprised me was how many girls actually pushed back you know there were many girls who were despite these restrictions and these um you know this kind of a gossiping environment particularly by elders in the community they were willing to take risks you know enter into romantic relationships mm. right they would sneak out you know with their boyfriends in different parts of the city to meet them uh, sometimes some of them would play truant from school or college right so they were pushing back against these traditional norms they were questioning these norms which were saying that you cannot talk to a boy you cannot have a boyfriend and they were basically wanting to make these personal choices in their lives you know that of entering into a romantic relationship exploring intimacy right and one of the interesting reasons you know was i mean of course all young people want to explore intimacy and so on but for these girls in particular you know they saw a lot of abusive marriages in the slum area in the slum neighborhoods mm-hmm. most of the marriages had domestic violence right whether it was an arranged marriage or a love marriage you know most of the women there were beaten up these girls had seen their mothers and sisters and cousins being beaten up by their husbands so they had a very bleak picture of marriage right and life post marriage you know they felt that this was the only time in their lives where they could actually have fun and you know mm-hmm. really enjoy themselves and they felt that if i don't have a boyfriend now you know if i don't enjoy my life now you know i will never be able to do it because whether i go for a love marriage or an arranged marriage life after marriage is going to be firstly there's going to be a lot of abuse secondly there's also going to be uh, a lot of economic hardship you know in the slum area a lot of women the mothers of these girls were working as housemaids because either the husband doesn't have a 
you know stable stable job many of the men were alcoholics so in many families women were the main earners so because these girls saw this around them you know they wanted to take the chance and enter into relationships explore sexuality explore intimacy before marriage because they felt that this was their only chance in life right right yeah and you know i think something uh, else that's important right to consider is that the slum itself is a very uh, small and enclosed space so you have a lot of people you know within a given area who are sharing space and time and i'm pretty sure that this can also take a toll on the privacy and agency of a lot of these young girls so uh, yeah i mean i'm sure that must have been something that you came across in your research as well so can you maybe tell us a little bit more about that yeah that's an interesting question um of course you're right there's there was very little privacy you know um seven eight people living in a two room house one room house but because a lot of these girls were going into schools and colleges and also some of them were working as well they had this opportunity to step out of the slum area mm-hmm. you know and this was an this was an excuse to step out of the slum area so that gave them uh, an opportunity to meet uh, the boys boyfriends male friends female friends outside the slum area you know like they would go to bandra bandstand mm. some of these girls also you know would say um, things like oh we uh, are going to the siddhi vinayak temple mm. in dadar but i mean of course they would not actually go to the temple but they would then be outside in another area with the boyfriend you know they would use the excuse of religion to get this sort of a uh, freedom from parents right uh, the these popular spots were siddhi vinayak temple there was bandra bandstand and there were these places in washi as well you know mm. in new mumbai so they would take these opportunities a lot of these romances also happened within the school you know i also interviewed school teachers as part of my study and school teachers were telling me these schools were of course located very close to the slum area and most of the students in the high school were from the slum area mm-hmm. and some of these school teachers were telling me that you know they had seen so many love affairs um, you know premarital relationships in school which they had not seen earlier mm-hmm. you know and it was a common thing like they would catch young boys and girls in a school toilet and or or some secluded area in the school compound um and so on right so there were possibilities and and because there were so many restrictions they in fact tried even harder to you know um look for possibilities to meet and explore their intimacy i see i see and um you know something else i'd like to inquire about right is that when we look at mumbai as a landscape it's a very heterogeneous one you have people coming from in and around maharashtra you have people coming from neighboring uh, you know towns and villages as well so you know i think something i'd like to inquire a little bit more into is the urban rural nexus right so are a lot of um, uh, of the people who are living in slums are they from the city of mumbai itself or are they you know from surrounding um, areas that may not necessarily be as urban and and if that were the case then how do you think um you know their uh, upbringing or maybe you know their background being from a rural area perhaps uh you know may have some influence into the way they perceive and go about um, you know forming relationships and and navigating that space yeah so these girls were actually born and brought up in mumbai their parents had migrated from the rural areas so this is well documented actually in the 70s there was a drought in maharashtra and a lot of people from the rural areas came to mumbai and to cities to look for employment because they couldn't sustain themselves in the villages right so all all my participants had been born and brought up in mumbai right so they were all urban in that sense yeah right. 
So, but I think it would be an interesting study today to look at, you know, what are the differences between rural and urban young women, you know, when it comes to sexuality. Very much so. Yes, yes. And in fact, um, you know, I think, and of course, the the urban-rural nexus is just one aspect of it. There are a lot of different uh, angles, you know, that come into play. One of the biggest examples I can think of, again, is caste and class differences. Because even though you have people who uh, have drastically different socioeconomic statuses, you see how there are certain norms of staying within the community and being respectful, which I think is quite similar to uh, people across socioeconomic classes. So how do you think the experience of these Maharashtrian uh, like Dalit girls um, is different from that of her Savarna or her upper caste counterparts? Do you think that the norms of, uh, of being respectful, you know, to like one's own family and, you know, and, and like not engaging in relationships prior to marriage still continues to be a theme? Or do you think that there is, um, you know, a difference in, in ideals of independence that are also given to a lot of like these women uh, across different backgrounds? See, that's a good question. Now we are, have to look at, you know, different time periods, right? So this, my PhD work happened nearly 10 years ago, oh. right? Um, my more recent work actually is on privileged women, upper middle class women in cities, right? In, in Mumbai, Bangalore and Pune. And I've collected this data in the last three years, right? And of course, now uh, I find there has been a shift, you know, uh, in terms of uh, norms that surround sexuality, right? So for instance, studies done in the 2000s or in the 1990s, you know, a lot of them have um, uh, discussed how upper middle class, upper caste women are bound by the notion of respectable femininity, Mm. right? And that, you know, they are very conscious of preserving the honor of the family. So they, even if they are, you know, engaged in relationships before marriage, you know, they abstain from sex and sexual intercourse, right? Because they want to maintain, you know, preserve that purity. They they believe in it also. And plus they also want to um, project it, right? Uh, because they are concerned about uh, their family's honor and so on, right? And this has been explored in some of the studies done in the 1990s and 2000s. My recent work with privileged uh, young women in these big cities that I told you is showing me a very big shift in terms of sexual norms, right? So now uh, there's this hookup culture, right? That that has been documented in a lots of media articles or mainstream media pieces, right? That what is prevalent among young privileged young urban Indians is the hookup culture or what you say as casual relationships and that that is so common right and that you know uh, the issue of you know abstinence abstinence from premarital sex is no longer a thing right Mm -hmm. in fact it's the other way around right there's pressure on young girls and young women and young boys to lose their virginity all right to have to have more and more sexual experience Mm -hmm. at a younger and younger age right so in that sense, there has been a total shift in norms and which also makes me wonder, you know, what, you know, whether these norms have trickled down into poor urban communities as well today, right? So, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that if I were to go to a slum area today in Mumbai and, mm. and interview young girls today, there would be a difference today compared to what I found 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Right. Because we also have smartphones now and that's also making a big difference in, you know, your access to, you know, your technology and pornography and so on. Even at that time, I, a lot of the young girls in the slum area were telling me about how they had been exposed to pornography through 
mobile phones right but these were not smartphones at that time today young women and men have smartphones and that completely changes the landscape right uh, coming back to this my recent study on privileged young women um, i mean i found that you know uh, that more and more young women are in fact uh, experimenting with casual relationships with casual sex uh, and uh, they are no longer concerned about uh, you know preserving uh, or rather abs abstaining from premarital sex right mm -hmm. that is seen as old fashioned and conservative um, mm -hmm. and so on right so that has been a big shift i think in sexual values and norms in in the past 10 years absolutely yes yes timing and context is absolutely crucial when you're doing your research especially of course when you're looking at a time gap as vast as 10 years because uh, you know back when you did your phd i'm sure that you know bombay as a city was very different uh, you know and the world as a as a whole of course is very different so yeah i think you know along those lines um, i'd like to ask you a little bit more about the research you've done since your phd work uh, you know especially in areas of sex and sexuality right you know like do you uh, find that there are any trends that have remained uh, constant over the years have there been any shifts and overall i think i just like to hear you know um, like a little bit about your experience uh, in that area right so i just told you about this recent work and i have collected data for this and i'm you know finishing a paper on um, young women's uh, sexual experiences you know um, and how basically um, what i find is a widespread popularity of hookups right casual relationships friends with benefits right no strings attached relationships right uh, and that has been of course hugely facilitated by uh, dating apps right mm -hmm. uh, which a lot of young people use right the taboo you know around using them is also mostly gone right a lot of people are experimenting with that interestingly you know this culture right is also going hand in hand with um our pubbing and clubbing culture in big cities right um one goes into pubs or clubs on on a friday night on a saturday night and you find somebody and you hook up right yeah. now uh, some of these people who are also in committed relationships because they are you know in the habit of going to visiting a club or a pub and drinking very often a hookup happens there and you know which is first the first time it happens it, it's constituted as cheating you know mm. uh, but then this has become so common right so so then then a lot of people also say that you know we um, uh, are in something called an open relationship mm. right um and where you know uh, there is no there is no thing as exclusivity right that you are free to actually explore uh, intimacy with other people even though you might have one person right in your life uh, so this is what i've noticed and interestingly also when you when we say this pubbing and clubbing culture in big cities we must also be aware that that also means that parents actually you know of uh, in many of these privileged uh, uh, families are also becoming increasingly open you know they want to be viewed as liberal mm -hmm. right and they want to in in, in uh, it's important for them to then allow their children to do what they want to do mm -hmm. you know oh we are liberal parents our children go to pubs and clubs and we don't mind right so as part of this culture you know one thing is connected to the other parents are liberal young people are 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 um, enjoying this freedom right and their parents are with them many of them some of some of the young people do say that you know we you know we face restrictions and so on even they 
then end up going to their friends' places and drinking and so on, even if they don't go to a pub or a club, right? Uh, but increasingly, parents are liberal. Young people are, um, you know, it's 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 part of the culture to be drunk, to get drunk on weekends. And um, connected to that is your opportunity to explore sexuality. Right, right, yeah. Hook up and get into casual relationships and so on, right? Right, right, so, right. Yeah. yeah, do you think um, the shift in culture is, you know, almost entirely attributed to, you know, the West, like, you know, like in terms of media and influence, or do you think that there is like any other factors that go into it as well? Oh, uh, it's almost completely the influence of the West, I would say, you know, really what you see on Instagram, what you see in your shows on Netflix and Amazon, right? I mean, this content, the the content, the media content uh, in originating from the West is being consumed by people all over the world, right? Mm-hmm. And it, much of this is, you know, Western values of living or lifestyle, which is being emulated by people elsewhere. So it's happening in among among Indians as well, you know, Indian youth sort of seeing what's happening in the West and believing that this is the way to live. Mm. And as a result, uh, you know, we see these changes happening. So certainly the influence of West cannot be denied, Mm. you know, and the influence of media. And this is something Arjun Apadurai has also written about, you know, that when we talk about globalization, it's also about these cultural aspects, you know, which, which um, are, you know, most of it is originating from the West and then going elsewhere. Of course, it's not complete aping. Of course, there's there's a mix and match, right? There's, of course, these so-called Indian values also come into play when there are certain decisions to be taken and so on. But the influence of the West is is massive. Right, yeah. And, you know, I think uh, a lot of our Indian values, so to speak, are so ingrained that oftentimes we don't realize them. Um, I think, you know, one very prominent example is that of inter-caste marriage. Even though we can say that, uh, you know, we are like fine with the idea in theory uh, and, you know, and um, we don't necessarily like discriminate on basis of caste. I think this isn't always the case because we tend to converse with people within our caste and class group. And, you know, our caste and class circles have sort of, uh, you know, only been, you know, um, uh, like consolidated over generations, over the years that now they're so deeply ingrained that we can't even realize them. So even when we try to, you know, say that we are castless, so to speak, this isn't the case because it's just that it's, you know, being like invisibilized in that sense, right? So, you know, like, do you have, you know, like any such examples that came up over the course of your research? Yeah, it's a good question. See, the thing is, I, when I was into, in my recent study with this, with these upper middle class young women, I was simply focusing on their current and past relationships and, you know, the dating culture and so on. Right. But it's an interesting question. See, when I, uh, when I did ask them about, you know, uh, intercaste marriages and so on, I mean, they do say that, yeah, we are open about it. Right. Mm -hmm. But this is the thing, right. A lot of people in interviews will express liberal views, especially around things like intercaste marriage and interfaith marriage. Right. But what you get the true picture only when you actually look at the numbers. You know, so uh, till even today, we have very low numbers of intercaste marriages and interfaith marriages in India, right? Um, in fact, interfaith marriages are going to become even more uh, difficult with the kind of political um, scenario we have in India right now. But, um, you know, the thing is that that is a study that has to be done with people of marriageable ages and to, to find out what's happening over there. 
you know are they willing to take those chances you know are they sort of a lot of people have relationships in university and colleges you know with somebody from a different caste hmm. right so that might be happening at that age but whether that actually ends up in marriage is 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 something that it cannot be uh determined like that you have to actually then look at you know the marriages that happen and then see how many intercaste marriages or interfaith marriages have happened you know because when you ask as i said when you ask people they are pretty uh, in favor of it you know they'll say well, we don't actually think about caste or community and so on mm-hmm. and a lot of young people don't also right i mean we obviously know that you know there there is increasing intercaste marriage especially among the upper caste that is happening mm-hmm. right um uh, but i mean tr- when we talk about intercaste to the truly radical thing is you know for a dalit for instance to marry a non dalit right mm-hmm. that is still very 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 rare right mm-hmm. and it's going to be a long time before that becomes more common place right that's also going to take more time because we also need some sort of um economic mm-hmm. parity between groups of people you know it when there's there's a economic similarity then young people actually end up in the same spaces same colleges and universities and then they have the chance to meet and mingle and you know fall in love and so on mm-hmm. right but when you have a scenario where let's say most of the poor um um dalit obc or even muslim students are going into government colleges or low cost private colleges whereas most of the upper caste are going into expensive private colleges right there's no chance to meet right so firstly we need a uh, um, uh, more universities where there is there is there's a possibility of people from different classes to meet and then that will automatically bring together people from different castes okay. as well or rather you know upper castes and lower castes as well right and you know i think the like the findings right that again we're speaking about here are very broader macro scale findings they aren't specific case studies because you know there's a lot of you know um, uh, you know like generalization that goes on right where we say that you know like a lot of people in general say that they agree to the idea of intercaste and interfaith marriages but then you know their own private lives they would not necessarily engage with it and, you know and the numbers are often a you know like a better you know like a reflection of reality right so i think you know like in a lot of like such cases a lot of these numbers and a lot of you know like the statistics we derive comes from you know like the review of you know of um, of like literature right in that sense and a lot of the back end research that goes on so can you maybe uh, you know like speak a little bit about like your literature review process and like um, you know and like your findings on along those lines hmm so in terms of literature especially uh, my current work on um, young women and what i found uh, about casual relationships and hookups and so on i mean uh, one very influential um, sociologist in the west called zygmunt bauman right he's written a few books um, i mean they are quite popular they are no, one of them is called liquid modernity liquid love and he has been he has written these books based on his observations on relationships in in the modern west right where he says that increasingly people see each other as disposable objects right so they do not want to invest in long term relationships because you know um, that gets boring and that's why you you know you never commit fully to a relationship because then if you commit fully that means you are actually giving up the chance of meeting somebody more exciting right so so people are constantly in flux in a way right and and where there are they are uh, where earlier the relationships were solid today we are living in liquid times right that's the term he uses which i thought was fascinating and that you know more and more people are sort of 
you know, moving from one relationship to another, one association to another, because they want variety, mm-hmm. right? And and uh, and that is a reason um, uh, they do not want to commit to one relationship because that just means that you'll um, deprive yourself of another relationship that might be more exciting, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the culture that he describes in the West, but the you know shades of that can be observed now, I think. Hmm. in in different parts of the world yeah and i think you know while this concept uh, you know i think definitely applies to a lot of relationships in the west i would say that you know at least from my understanding this is not always the case you know in um, you know in a lot of families in india in fact even in upper class and upper caste families where there is this implicit uh, or explicit pressure right to get married you know once you reach a certain age you know so in fact, even with a lot of um, of working women, right, you know, that question comes up, which is, you know, like, when will you, you know, like, get married, right? And I think, um, so in that sense, I think, you know, it may also impose a restriction on a lot of, uh, of you know, of, like, the subjects who you um, were interviewing. So, yeah, so I'd just like to know if this was a finding that uh, came up in your research as well. No, so I was speaking to very young women, no? uh, like, 21, 20, okay. 22. So they are still in their undergrad Undergra- they are still undergraduate students, you know, so right now they're not facing any pressure. And I mean, there's a- enough evidence to show that the age of marriage has gone up, you know, in India as well, and particularly among urban educated upper middle class. I mean, um, I think, for instance, your generation, I think there's going to be, you know, um, more and more young women who will want to get married only after they've crossed 30 or something. Right? They want this decade to sort of explore relationships and build their careers and you know explore life you know before they settle down in a marriage. So I think the age of marriage has shifted. The young women I spoke to were very young, so they were not facing any pressure of marriage at that time. Yes, yes, definitely. And um, you know, I think one final question I would like to wrap up with, right, is whether you think there's um, you know, anything that we've left out, you know, over the course of our interview, anything else that surprised you or any broad learnings that you've, uh, you know, gained through both your PhD work as well as your research in general since then, especially in these areas of, you know, of like gender and sexuality, um, you know, looking at India specifically as a site of research. Yeah, so, um, you know, being from an upper middle class family, I mean, I have had and and any any person from upper middle, from an upper middle class family will tell you that you know we are so privileged that we have easy access actually to a slum area mm-hmm. or to a people you know people from poor backgrounds right they will be more than ready to speak to you right mm-hmm. because of this class difference right um, so of course i was very conscious of that power difference and i tried to make an attempt to be a power, you know, to, to really form a rapport and, and a relationship where they feel respected, you know, the people and the young women I was interviewing, right? Mm-hmm. You cannot wish away the differences in class, right? Mm-hmm. But what you can do is be respectful towards the people you are interviewing, you know? And that is something I learned during my PhD years because I spent such a, so many months in those slum neighborhoods, you know? talking to young women, their mothers, their families. And, um, and that taught me quite a bit, you know, but as, as a privileged person, I had easy access actually to the slum area. And you would have easy access as long as you are respectful of the people, you know, right? If you are not respectful, then you will find that there are barriers 
right? Because also they also have dignity, of course, and they do not want to just answer your questions, you know, uh, just because you've come from a um, uh, fancy building, you know, mm. right? Uh, you have to uh, learn to sort of uh, adopt a, a position where you are saying that you are the student. For instance, I went as a student, you know, as a PhD student saying that I want to learn about your lives. You know more about your lives, obviously, and you, I want to learn about you, about you, and yeah. you know more, and, and, and please, please share, you know, and I'm here to learn, you know. Yeah. So if you adopt that attitude, you know, then people open up, actually, surprisingly, they open up so much, you know, they are, yeah. they, they are waiting to tell you about themselves, particularly young girls who are actually, you know, not really asked right? Usually in some areas or in any families, whenever there's somebody coming from outside, they'll want to interview the man or the male or at least the adult, right? But when you want to approach and speak to young girls, right? They, if you are respectful, they really feel valued and they are willing and very happy to share about their lives, you know, because finally somebody is wanting to hear their stories, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you know, I think another thing I'd like to clarify is that, you know, I remember, um, you know, you mentioning that you were in the UK, right, you know, like in terms of like doing your PhD and all that. So like what, um, you know, help like did you receive like from the department or, you know, or, like from you know, like, your mentors and how exactly like did you split, you know, like the time between you know, like your field work, you know, in like Mumbai and actually, you know, back in the UK when you were, you know, like doing your research, what did that look I, I got a lot of support from my supervisors at Cambridge. You know, I had two supervisors and, and um, really everything. I mean, from psychological, emotional support to, you know, whatever help I needed. Plus, when I was doing my PhD in Mumbai, I was also staying very close to TIS. So I had access to the library in TIS. And I was also in touch with one or two professors in TIS. So I also got help from there, you know, to, to, to talk about, you know, the data I was collecting and... And I was constantly in touch with my supervisors in the UK as well. Um, mm -hmm. And I was able to talk to them, share with them my experiences. Plus, you know, they, because they were so experienced, they knew how long and difficult the PhD journey is, you know. Mm -hmm. So they, even they would also insist that I take breaks in between, you know, because they knew that going to a slum area, um, talking, having these intense interviews um, can also be draining, emotionally draining. You know? yeah. And they were very, always very supportive about and insisting that I, I should take breaks, you know, do something else in between and so on. So, I mean, yeah, I have, I have no complaints about that at all. In fact, I, I got a lot of support. You know? Yeah. And I think the fieldwork component becomes all the more important, right? When, you know, there isn't necessarily enough literature to sort of, you know, back up research in this area. So do you find that there was, uh, you know, a lot of, um, you know, available, uh, like literature that had already been done, um, you know, especially concerning the area of sex and sexuality in slums, or is this, um, you know, like a relatively new concept that you came about? Especially? Yeah, no, there is barely anything. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, there are many articles in the media. Hmm. And I think there are popular books, one or two popular books as well, which have uh, talked about this, but I mean, very barely any scholarly work. So when I started, like, uh, two years ago, I collected data and now, now I'm almost finishing a paper. So I think, yeah, there's a, I, in general, there's a dearth of research, qualitative research on sexuality, you know? And so there is a dearth in this particular area as well. Right, right. You know, yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think um, having done, you know, all of this field work, right, I think 
uh, something I'd like to ask you as well is that, you know, is there anything that you think, um, you know, really took you by surprise, you know, in the sense that like there are a lot of stereotypes and, and you know, like certain like beliefs around people who live in slums, you know, so like did any of your, um, uh, of your findings from fieldwork really serve to, you know, break that down or like dismantle, you know, any such thoughts that you had earlier? I mean, there are many things, as I told you when I was telling you about my PhD, what surprised me, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the risks that these girls were going to, were, were, were willing to take despite the restrictions and despite the threat of violence from your elder brother or father, you know, if they find out you're loitering with a boy or mm-hmm. your boyfriend, you know. Mm-hmm. So that sort of courage, the risks that these girls were taking, you know, their capacity for joy, you know, despite the difficult uh, circumstances they were living in, you know, that was, that was something that truly took me by surprise because a lot of people will tend to look at slum people only oh how you know pathetic their lives are and they must be sad or they must be you know depressed or because right they don't see that oh these girls are also actually having a great time and they're finding ways to have a great time you know um so i mean I think that that's one stereotype that needs to be busted you know because there's a portrayal of poor people in the media as as a certain kind of you know as a mass of poor as if they are all the same and you know they are all leading miserable lives right and of course there are problems there's no denying that right? there are there are several problems in their lives but but many of them have a zest for life and you know an enthusiasm which you often do not find among more privileged people actually mm. who are more prone to complaining you know so yeah. i mean yeah that was that was a surprise i think Sure, ma'am. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think that's about it from my end. Is there anything you think we may have left out or any final thoughts you may have? or uh, Otherwise, I think we can call it a wrap. No, thank you. Thank you for, uh, you know, starting this podcast. I, I enjoyed speaking about this. I think I revisited some of my experiences during the PhD years. So sure. that was good. Yeah, right, thank ma'am. you. episode if you enjoyed this episode then don't forget to hit share and subscribe you can also catch us at research down on twitter for further updates